Hi, this is Frank Schaefer. I have had the pleasure of talking to some of the leading authors, artists, activists, and change makers of our time on this podcast. And I want to personally thank you for subscribing, listening, and sharing 100 plus episodes over 100,000 times. We have a lot of work to do to heal our divisions and secure our democracy. And I look forward to more conversations with those important voices that will bring clarity to the situation we find ourselves in as we move toward November of 2024. If you appreciate these conversations and my cultural and political commentary, please subscribe to this podcast in conversation with Frank Schaefer on your favorite platform and to my substack, It Has to Be Said, which can be found at frankschaefer.substack.com. I'd really appreciate the help. Thank you. Every connection that we have starts somewhere. And that mm -hmm. nugget is the beginning of a tiny connection. And my attitude was, in order for you to grow your life, investing time, energy, joy, and heart into connecting, however you do that, is going to be the best spent energy of your day. Hey, this is Frank Schaefer, and you are watching and or listening to In Conversation with Frank Schaefer, which is a podcast and a Facebook Live event, and then goes out on the interwebs, all the places things go. So um, I'm going to be talking today with someone who has written a book that basically has a title, which sounds like a line from something I tell people all the time that I believe in. So it's sort of, I, I love this title. Um, the person I'm interviewing is, is Jen Nash, and, and the book is Big Power of Tiny Connections, How Small Interactions Spark Awesome Outcomes. And there's the cover. I have one here, too. But um, anyway, I'm going to ask you to hold it up again in a minute. Um, we will link to this book so you'll be able to get it and order it and all that good stuff. And we'll be talking about it. Um, Jen, let me just ask you about yourself before we get into the book. Give me a little bit of your story. You know, my story is I come from an evangelical background. I left it. I'm a writer. I got Jeannie pregnant when we were 17 and 18. I have three grown children and five grandchildren. That's the story. Tell me about yourself a little bit on the personal side, and then let's get into the book. Yeah, having having swum through your book, I am I am familiar with your background, your epically interesting, diverse background. So I'll match your diversity with while sort of blonde and blue eyed, I was raised in Asia. Um, just to really confuse things, I was sent to French school because my mother, who was American, and my father, who was Australian, wanted perfectly Canadian children. Are we following any of that so far? Yeah, that's, <laughs> that makes a lot of sense. Um, and I think this will really resonate considering everything that's happening. My mom moved to Canada at the age of 26 because she didn't like where things were going in the U.S. It was, you know, the time of the Vietnam War. And she was just like, oh, Canada, this is it. And she never went back. Like she, mm -hmm. she literally never went back. And so this Ivy League graduate just settled in Canada and she spoke four languages when she graduated Vassar. And she was like, I'm just going to keep this legacy going. Mm -hmm. So my brother and I speak French and we grew up around the world. And I believe it or not, graduated Canada at high school in Canada. And then I moved to New York, much to her chagrin and went to art school here. And I've had a love affair with New York ever since. So, and are so. you're you're in New York right now as we speak? You're at home. Yes. And I am what, in New York. aside from writing books, and we're going to get into the book, but let's just go a little further. After art school, 
what have you been doing besides writing this book? Just talk a little bit about your life. Yeah, there's a there's a few decades to cover in there. Yeah, um, for sure. So I went to art school, became a financial reporter because, you know, that made perfect sense again. And then ended up working in advertising, which was my master plan all along. Um, thanks to some interesting sort of career choices that I made at 16, believe it or not. And I became a creative director for big brands like Apple, Adobe, uh, Audi, Porsche, Hershey's mm. Chocolate, Keurig Coffee, um, good and bad brands, all depending on how you look at them. And uh, I loved it. You know, I loved building digital brands, uh, shooting commercials, and that was a big passion of mine. I've also been working in real estate, uh, buying, selling, flipping, owning, managing. So that's like a very random side hustle. Hmm. But um, I've always been very aware that if you're not inheriting money, you, you need a plan. And um, I, I was not going to be inheriting money. Hmm. So I, I, I have a plan. And, you know, it's, it's interesting. It was just before the pandemic, I switched gears. I started to mentor. I have a real passion for supporting women and uh, supporting financial awareness and teaching women uh, in college, out of college about negotiating became something of a calling for me. So I started mentoring and coaching. And over the last four years, that's really evolved into mm -hmm. being a full-time executive coach specifically for female leaders. And I do corporate trainings around connection and masterful storytelling. So it's all sort of come together in an interesting evolution. And uh, the, the book the book only got born in, in I, I wrote the first pass at the very end of 2020 in a six week speed path, which I'm sure you're very familiar with. And then um, my 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 developmental editor. Sorry, I just totally spaced on that. She she laughed when she read it. She's like, this is just a charming book, but no one needs to read it. <laughs> and, and then, you know, she came back to me and said, if you're willing to completely restructure, you know, take a look at different sections in a new way, I think you have something here. And so I rewrote the book in another six week pass and um, finished it at the beginning of last year. And then I went through a bunch of personal changes. Uh, so I didn't, I didn't actually publish it until January of this year. So I spent the end of last year doing all the editing and working with an editor and then actually getting it born. As you is, know, it is, takes time. Is the book, uh, uh, where, what's the overlap between the book and some of the coaching you're doing on the corporate level? Let's just talk about that for a minute and then we'll get into the, the book itself. Um, there's a little bit of overlap in terms of I run a corporate training called Connected Culture in a Disconnected mm -hmm. Workplace. And so that's actually part training, part group coaching, because at the end of the day, if people just sit in rooms and knowledge gets tossed at them, mm -hmm. we absorb about 10 or 20 percent. If we're not actively engaged and participating, that money is just poor corporate money flying out the door. Mm. So all my trainings are very hands-on, experimental, involving, like you, I should, I didn't mean experimental, I meant experiential. Sure. So you can take it in and feel it, kinesiology speaking, kinetically speaking. I'll get my words straight today. But um, so there's overlap, but not tons of it. The book was really meant to be, um, how do you, connect with the world around you if you don't necessarily look at the world around you from a connective viewpoint. 
Hmm. How can you turn every tiny little interaction into a potential moment of, oh, cool. And I, I truly approach it. And um, some of the uh, college speaking, and I know you're very familiar with college speaking, some of the college speaking that I do, I like to start with the idea that every person you meet has a potential to change your life and you have the potential to change theirs. So what if you stepped into your life at every turn with that attitude? Like, what does your conversation with a librarian look like? What does your conversation with a barista look like? Or the person next to you on the bus or at dinner when you don't know anybody? You know, I mean, a lot of this is post-COVID, pre-COVID, but I think there were also chapters on how do you connect online without ever knowing anyone? Mm -hmm. It's absolutely possible. I know people's lives who've been changed by people they've never met. Yeah, it's interesting. Let's let's just dive in on on the connection front for a minute. You know, I'm going to be 70 in August, and so I've seen a huge evolution in the way people connect or don't connect. Um, you know, basically the world I come from, you know, there were not dating apps. I met Jeannie because we both wanted to listen to Abbey Road, and I had the album when she was traveling. Um when I walk my dog in the morning, it would be absolutely unthinkable for me to put in earbuds and listen to something else because then I wouldn't hear my neighbor saying from across the street, hi, Frank, how are you doing? And the conversations would never start. You know, it's funny, you know, maybe this is just some crazy old guy talking, but I, I have never in my life been in a period of history where the people around me are less apt to connect than they are today. And a lot of it is because, of course, people are looking down at their cell phones and or just afraid of people around them. So let's kind of start there, because, the, you know, the world I come from just pre-Internet and pre-cell phone, um, I have I have had terrific conversations on airplanes. In fact, one of my books starts talking about this opera singer I met who really changed my life and I changed her life and we've become great friends and she and Jeannie and I and her husband and kids, you know, we're very close. Well, it started because neither of us had earbuds in. We weren't looking at a screen. We were talking. So what is your observation in terms of a snapshot of social skills right now with both younger or older people? Age is not the question here. Um, either fearing and not connecting to people around them and or technology, which was supposed to connect the world, actually separating us in ways that I'd never experienced in my lifetime. And I've done a lot like you have and been all sorts of places. I've never seen people living in more isolated bubbles unrelated to COVID. I mean, just physically the bubble, the electronic bubble we put around ourselves. How, how do you react to that? And, and you know, what, what would be your view on that as it relates to your book but just to the larger social question we face now in terms of connectivity and social skills. Long question, but I'll, I'll let you riff for a long time on that. And I think you can tell us about your whole book <laughs> as a result. Actually, I was going to ask you if you had to just sort of synopsize your question, what, do you, what is the heart of where you want to go? Hmm. You mean in this talk together? No, I mean, just in that question, because in an essence, what I'm hearing you say is technology, instead of bringing us closer, has created, I, yeah. don't think it's, I don't think it's created physical space, but it's created visual, hmm. mental, and emotional distance that's unimaginable. Yeah. 
And I'll so, throw one other thing in here that you, I want you to consider. Um, and we're of different generations too, but you've lived all over the place and done crazy things. So you you will have experienced this. In my experience, my best moments of life and actually what turned out to be most meaningful were the unplanned serendipitous accidents that I was present and accounted for and therefore able to follow up on. It was never the big plan. So, um, I, you know, and I think once you would remove that serendipitous accident phase of life, you're, you're in trouble. And I think a lot of the dating app thing, you know, the idea of me scrolling through somebody's profile before I decided whether I wanted to talk to them on any level of life, whether it's a neighbor who's moved in next door or someone I wanted to date, is just unimaginable from where I come from both generation-wise, but also in terms of personal taste. I'm not just talking about dating apps. I mean the whole thing. So, you know, it it seems to me that the flood of information is so intense now uh, where you Google people, you meet someone casually, then you Google them to see more about them rather than having an organic kind of connection. You know, how do you relate to all that? Because I think your title, The Big Power of Tiny Connections, How Small Interactions Spark Awesome Outcomes, how is that possible in today's world. So that would be the biggest question I would ask you in terms of the book, just the possibility of doing what you're talking about in the title. Hi, this is Frank Schaefer. If you appreciate my cultural and political commentary, please do me a favor and subscribe to my Substack. It has to be said, which can be found at frankschaefer.substack.com. You can subscribe for free or you can kick in a couple of dollars a month and help me out and help me keep this going if you're able. Either way, I'm incredibly grateful for your support and most of all for your participation. We have a lot of work to do to heal our divisions and secure our democracy as we move toward November of 2024. And every subscription helps create, build, sustain, and put voice to this movement for truth. Thank you so much. I I remain firmly optimistic and I do tell a story in the beginning of the book about how the, this, this friend of mine went to a yoga class and Mm. the yoga teacher doesn't show up and you know, the class after about 10 minutes, everybody sort of congregates in the middle of the room. They're milling around, they're chatting, like they're trying to decide, do they just do our own practice? Do they leave? Mm. And this young 27 year old turns to my friend, who's an incredibly attractive woman you know, in her late forties, but you can't tell she's, she's Asian. So she looks sort of timeless. And he asks her, what's your Tinder handle? And she just looks at him and says, why? And he's like, well, so I can ask you out. So like in that moment, I thought that story just encapsulated the yes, confusion everything. that we're experiencing in this time. Yeah. So- she's standing right in front of him. Right. He's standing right in front of him. But he but but to your point, he's never asked a girl out without an intermediary. He's always had a cell phone and the texting and the DMing and sliding into someone's TikTok Instagram DM, right? So it's their world. And on one level, I think you and I can sit back and say, oh my gosh, um, they're missing out. But I think it's the evolution. And there there will be some kind of a shift. Because mm-hmm. they know they're missing out. They, yeah. they are hungry. They are anxious. They are panicked. They are on anxiety meds. And I mean, I have lots of theories around that. But I think it's 
honestly incredibly sad that so many people between the ages of 18 and 40 are on anxiety meds and it's completely normal. And there's a ton of data about how it's all related to cell phone usage and largely to social media platforms. But it seems to me, you know, just to jump in there for a minute, and this is way off subject in a way, but I'm so interested in your views because, you know, you you seem to really thought about all this. Um, You know, one of the accidents of history is how, how do you ever put anything back in the box once it's out? And so we all are saying the same things about cell phones and the people who have grown up on them and who are totally just staring at the screen, asking for a cell phone connection when the person standing in front of you, they would understand the irony of that. They all know what the numbers on loneliness and all the rest of it are. But it seems that we're absolutely incapable of modifying our behavior and or just saying, hey, this is ridiculous. Let's forget this and find some other way to, to be. You know, we, we lament the same things and everybody sort of agrees on the lament. I haven't heard anybody come up with anything realistic on how to actually modify things or change them or get rid of them to the point where it would help people. So this is where I think your book comes in. And I think your concept of time for mothers and time for nurturing and the importance spent Mm. around having the time to care. Because I, I think that the true courage moving forward is going to come from mothering, whether it's done by a man or a woman, because you make that distinction beautifully, nurturing, coming from firmer nose. The lack of restriction that parents Mm. are putting in place is to me quite shocking. Mm. And I've had this conversation with many parents. Um, They feel very judged. And they're like, what do you know? Uh, at the end of the day, I, I, I don't know anything. Their child is their child. Hmm. But I have spoken to parents, many parents who've pulled their daughters. Primarily, it does seem to affect young women more, probably because social media women are just more community oriented. Um, pulled out of college because they're just too anxious. They're having panic attacks. They're just not doing well. Yes, hmm. these kids do get help and they get back you know, into society eventually. But at the same time, I'm so sorry that that's this child's experience. Hmm. Meanwhile, to juxtapose that, I have watched um, people in my extended family who were not allowed cell phones until they were 16. These were kids who sat. I'm sure most of you have awkward family mandated events. And for me as a Canadian, we had boxing day. So there was always an awkward boxing day. And from literally noon to 10 o'clock, these children sat in the living room or they played games or like they were engaged Hmm. quietly or other. And I was, I remember being like on about the sixth year when they were fully all like teens, tweens, or like early, like 11. Hmm. I was like, how is this possible? I don't see this anywhere, but here. And, you know, their, their mother insisted it was because they didn't have a cell phone. So they didn't know any other way. Hmm. And these kids are still kind, relatable, open. I, I think, I think most kids are fine ish. It's just to your point, they are missing out. And eventually, I mean, eventually you start to wonder, is TSA a godsend? Cause you're not allowed to have a cell phone out. You're not allowed right. to have earbuds. All of a sudden is standing in line waiting to get through security, a moment of exciting opportunity. Yeah. <laughs> 
Hey, let's let's back up here a minute. Let me reintroduce you. Um, you're listening to and watching In Conversation with Frank Schaefer, which is a podcast that I do. And today I'm talking with Jen Nash, who has written this book, The Big Power of Tiny Connections, How Small Interactions Spark Awesome Outcomes. So Jen, hold that book up again now. Let's do it right. Um, there's our high-tech cut to the book. We get the author to hold it up. There's the cover. We are going to have links to the book so you can get it. Now, I want you to look down at that book and take us through. Tell me what's in the book in chapter by chapter. You, you know, give us give us the outline, the thumbnail sketch here, and tell us what the content is and how people can apply it so that I can start asking you some questions as you see your own book rather than me describing it. Sure. So... I mean, interestingly enough, what I actually wanted to put a whole section in around cell phones and technology creating that loss of connection. Hmm. My developmental editor was staunchly against it because she said it removed agency from us as humans. At the end of the day, we are choosing to put that block up, right? So we can't blame cell phones for hmm. putting the block up for us. Because it's our choice to pick it up, our choice to sleep with it next to our pillows, you know, all yeah. of the things. So the very first chapter is called Tiny Connections, Made to Be, Not Meant to Be. And it's about having agency. It's about showing up in your own life and having those magic moments. And I actually tell the, the story about, I call him Yoga Boy, you know, about the Yoga Boy, you know, yes. asking for a Twitter, a, a Tinder handle. And then chapter two is, is I don't need more friends and other lies we tell ourselves. And similarly to your book, where you dive into interesting data, mm. I talk about how loneliness is so crushing that most people don't realize this, but loneliness is equivalent to having, you know, the same kind of blood, blood levels as an obese person smoking 15 mm. cigarettes a day and having all sorts of other like heart related problems. Loneliness is physically manifested and there's a whole movement among doctors that this actually needs to be one of the questions and criteria that older people are, are checked in on for because sure. it kills us faster. Mm -hmm. um, and so then I have this whole fun sort of series of chapters. And the really great thing about this book, if I may say so in myself, is every chapter one through 10 has a tiny little bit of like at the end of the chapter, it says, what's the point? So if you're in a rush and you just want to read two or three sentences, I sum up the entire chapter and just snapshot it for you. Hmm. And the other fun thing is this book does not to be, need to be read in order. It's a series of interesting insights. It's wisdom. It's how, how to all around different topics. So the, the primary part one of the book is called, you know, hoping for connection. Part two is called tiny connections will dot, dot, dot. And each chapter, it's like tiny connections will make you more interesting at parties. Tiny connections will help you get a better job. So mm. people can really self-select what's calling them. I help you, you know, become a better person, you know, make your life more exciting, turn you into a super connector. There's even a chapter called tiny connections will get you laid, which I think in the evangelical community will get this book unbought. Yes, but, maybe, maybe, but you know, that's a good, good chapter head. I like that when I ran into it myself. Hey, let me ask ask you a question to go back let's define tiny connections um because you you do in the book but i just want you to either pull a sentence from the book out and or define that because i have a good idea of what you mean and you give good examples but let's talk about what a tiny connection is and then let's talk about the opposite as opposed to what as opposed to a big connection give me just give me a handle on that 
Well, I think the idea was every connection that we have starts somewhere. And that Mm -hmm. nugget is the beginning of a tiny connection. And my attitude was in order for you to grow your life, investing time, energy, joy, and heart into connecting, however you do that, is going to be the best spent energy of your day. And so my idea was tiny connections can be the casual conversation on the plane that changes your life. Mm-hmm. Right. And I have one of those stories and I actually reached back out to him, you know, 11 years later. And I said, I'm putting your story in a book. Is that OK? And I want to get my facts right because he had a very complicated life. And he, mm-hmm. and he you know, corrected my facts and said he remembered the conversation as well. So then the question becomes, was that a tiny connection? But you know what? It started as me offering a stranger half mm-hmm. my orange on a plane, something that no one does. Right. You don't yeah. To strangers, except I know that you were raised the same time my mom was raised. Well, you'd be a little younger, but you absolutely offer foods to strangers. Like, yes, you know, back in the 30s and 40s, don't eat in public unless you brought enough to share was a very common adage. Yeah. You know, and if you go to Africa or um, other interesting countries in the Middle East and even in Asia, you're traveling and you pull some food out people will expect that you're going to share and they'll share with you. It's lovely. Yeah. So yeah, for me, yeah. tiny connections was also a way of having this seem achievable. Mm-hmm. I didn't want, like, nobody's going to read a book called go out and make the greatest connection of your life. That sounds heavy. Yeah. I wanted it to be joyful and fun and a very snappy read. And so, so much of the book is filled with stories, not just my own, but I interviewed a lot of different people who had these moments that Mm. really changed their lives. Maybe they got, you know, invited to move from Australia to New York randomly upon dancing with somebody at a party. You know, maybe they, they, they met someone on Instagram and that person's advice literally transformed their life, you Mm -hmm. know, 360 degrees within a year. Yes. These types of connections happen, but to your point, you have to be present. Like you have to be engaged and whether whether you're engaged on your phone and whatever, as opposed to just mindlessly not being present, Hmm. I think. And I think that's what I'm asking for. I'm asking that people look at these connections in a different way. And also like, how do you show up when you want to get a better job? Well, you don't show up asking for a better job. You, you try and connect with people as humans. Mm. And I think a lot of people don't know how to do that. Like I have mentees who ask me all the time, well, what's the first email look like? They have no idea how to follow up. Yeah. I'm like, well, what'd you talk about? We talked about our cats. Great. That is an awesome way to follow up another cat video. That's an email that person's opening, Hmm. but I think that they don't think it through. And this book, one of the comments that I get regularly is I just love how granular you got with some of the tips. Hmm. Yeah. So let me just hold the book up again. uh, And I just, I'm going to urge people to, to order it uh, by connecting through us. Speaking of little tiny connections, here's a nice big one. Um, the big power of tiny connections um, and order Jen's book. You can, you'll be able to click on it wherever this is showing or, or um, playing. Let me, let me talk to an, uh, about another aspect of tiny connections that really turn into very big things. It seems to me that something I've written about and you touch on as well um, in terms of the physical 
changes we make in our bodies through loneliness. Of course, there's a flip side to that. And that is there's all sorts of studies that show, for instance, that grandparents my age who are doing active childcare for grandchildren, there's a big thing in the Berlin study, something I quote that, um, you know, it's the single biggest predictor of a longer life uh, as giving up smoking. It's, you know, people live five to seven years longer. Um, and it isn't just because of the altruism and the joy. There's the physical activity, the mental engagement. Something that I think is a big point about your book as well, um, that's a set of a side benefit that really needs to be thought about is we get all these studies showing that when we do something for someone else in terms of the joy it produces in our life and the, the uplift and the happiness, it lasts so much longer than say acquiring a new material possession. And it seems to me that the serendipitous tiny connections are the place where we have the most opportunity to do something good for someone. Uh, and if we miss out on those, it's going to have huge and devastating, eventually devastating effects on us because we never put ourselves in a position where we're actually doing something for an individual. So that could be in a chance encounter. It can be paying for groceries for somebody who's run out of money in the line or their, their card isn't working, whatever it might be. But um, the kind of joy we get out of altruistic acts, spontaneous that come from those tiny connections is something else that goes away if we have no ability to make them. So, uh, you know, if you don't ask someone how they are when you're meeting them and you don't learn about them, you know, when they do have a need, they're never gonna tell you about it because you're a stranger to them. Um, and this could be a neighbor you see walking a dog, somebody who lives in the same building, somebody who works in the, the, you know, the restaurant you go to, whatever it may be. Talk a little bit about the opportunity to help people in an altruistic way that when rebounds well on us and our health through tiny connections that let us know what other people need that we can then do something about on a small level, big level or a small level. So I think your question is twofold because in your question I heard, you know, if we, if we always are connecting on a superficial level, we're never going to get to a point where anyone would ever ask for help. So how right. do we get to that level? Right. Hmm. Um, and I think vulnerability, which Brene Brown is doing such a beautiful job of bringing, bringing to the surface is, is key. And then it's funny because there's lots of points in my book where I suggest being vulnerable about what you're feeling is one of the greatest um, icebreakers possible. You know, you're at an awkward event, whether it's personal or business, and you don't know anybody or the two people that you know just went to the bathroom. What do you do? Mm -hmm. You know, I I suggest being really honest, walking up to a group of people, you know, drink in hand and saying, hey, the two my two friends went to the bathroom. I'm standing here feeling like an idiot. Can I join your conversation? Yes. And it's incredibly honest, but immediately you've let your guard down. And it's possible that someone's going to welcome you and share a vulnerability of their own. Yeah. And I, th I think that happens as well. So instead of crossing your neighbor and saying, hey, how are you? Or something expected, you could say, you know, I wanted to deepen our conversation. I wanted to ask you something more personal. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and depending on how big you want to go, 
you know, ask them the last time that they, they cried, what made them cry? Like Mm -hmm. go, go there or say, you know, what makes you belly laugh? Like what brings you the greatest joy on a regular basis? I've been thinking about joy lately and like try and expand what you talk about because then you're actually going in Mm -hmm. and, and, you know, be ready to share whatever you're asking for, for yourself as well. You can't walk up to someone that, you know, for a couple of years and be like, what makes you cry? And then not share what makes you cry. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> you know, um, and I think, I think that the world needs that, you know, the world wants people to reach out and connect. And I, I think even the groceries is lovely and buying the stranger behind you in Starbucks, you know, their coffee as you're sure. in the drive through line, that's all lovely. But I think we often miss opportunities to support people we know better when someone asks, um, potentially about a job or someone at a company, mm. you know, we might just slough it off as opposed to taking the 10 minutes to find out what do you need? Who's the introduction I can make? Mm-hmm. What will facilitate you getting what you need? Mm-hmm. And, and I often look at it as like, how would I want to be treated? Like, you know, if I needed something, I would really appreciate if someone would just try a little for me. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, tell me a little bit about the connection between the, the book and of course, we've been in the COVID phase and so forth, and you've done speaking. Are you back out in person? Are you doing stuff online? What What does your day consist of in terms of the kind of connections you're making with other people right now, just physically? I, uh, I am very excited to say that I am uh, being invited to speak in person, which actually fills me with joy. Mm. Uh, I just did a 25 person training for the fifth largest television cable provider. So that that kind of day is a pretty awesome day, in my opinion. Mm. And that actually filled a week um, because it's one on one training and we split it up actually in an interesting way. Because of COVID, all these people, so I do masterful storytelling, which is basically how do you take your presentation skills to the next level? If you want to enroll whoever you're you're pitching or upsell or connect better with your audience and create audience-centered content, you need stories because stories move our brains from left brain to right brain. And so I, I support companies, you know, train their employees and it's, it's so fun to do that. But now, to your point, COVID's come in and a lot of people don't want to work on site. So it's interesting. Now my training's 50-50 on site, in person, and they'll deliver presentations you know, in the coaching sessions with me. But then we'll also do Zoom coaching, right? So that I can see how they're showing up digitally. I guess that would be digitally, yeah, mm-hmm. digitally. And so it's interesting how it's changed what I do. So it's, it's absolutely a hybrid, you know? I mean, Mm -hmm. I I feel like, do you travel less? Um, Because I know you've always spoken a great deal and you did mention in your book that Lucy was very excited to have you home during, but do you find that your travel schedule now is 50, 50 because a, they don't want to pay to fly you. You don't want to pay to fly and B you can do a great job on zoom. Well, I've even found that some of the media stuff I've done, you know, in the, in the good old days, um, when I did some commentary for somebody like MSNBC, they would send a car and I would always in the back of my head say, wow, I wish I could just call somebody and say, hey, I'll drive myself. Give me the $250 you're spending because you're not paying me for this. I'm coming in and doing free commentary for you. But um, and I'm glad my book's getting a plug. But hey, I'll drive myself. But they they it, it was their policy. Well, guess what? They started doing everything on Zoom. And now I've noticed that half of them 
are like, hey, you know, we're <laughs> they're saving the money. Everybody's used to seeing it on Zoom now. We all got better setups than we used to have. And so, uh, you know, the in-person stuff in a studio has kind of gone away a lot. But um, in terms of speaking gigs, uh, a lot of the bookstore stuff I've done is I don't think is ever coming back. It's it's almost the same phenomena that's had it happen to movie screenings in theaters. Yes, there are still some big blockbusters that get released to screens, but more and more and more, the rest of us are streaming and we expect to do that. So I, I think it's in flux, but I really do think the in-person stuff is going to become um, the exception and the rule is going to be you know, what we're doing here today. And I'm not particularly happy about that, but I, I do think that's the way it's gonna be um, in the future. Let me change gears, shift gears here for a minute. You know, I in my podcast, in conversation with Frank Schaefer, I talked to a lot of women at different stages of their lives, a lot of women in different professions, a lot of people, um, you know, doing all sorts of different things on an executive level and then dealing with parenthood and all kinds of wonderful conversations. There was a time when you could, especially women in business relationships, trying to work with all kinds of people steered away from politics or religion or whatever that might be divisive because they still want to have that account with Pepsi and the person they're dealing with may have been, you know, voting for Trump or voting for Biden and they don't want to get into it. But I don't think politics is escapable now. Um, you know, we're in the era when Roe has just been um, rescinded and we have a court majority of, of Republicans who are very much beholden to the evangelical world I came from. How are you balancing that in your own work? Because um, it seems to me that the idea that somehow, you know, politics can't intrude or hurt my business or whatever, th this is going to go away now. Uh, and and I, I don't think it can be avoided. So in terms of pitching your own book, which is not about that subject, um, it would seem to me a, a lot of discussion will eventually stray into the political realm or the realm of culture, the culture conflict of culture war, this kind of stuff. Are you getting more of that now yourself? Are you having more conversations like that? Are you being asked more questions? Are you finding it inconvenient or unavoidable to have a kind of, well, this is my corporate thing. We're not doing politics here. We're doing relationships and personal stuff. I, I just think those worlds are going to change Mm -hmm. uh, because of just the, what's going on out there. I mean, at a certain point, you've got to just face reality and say, no, the world we're in right now demands some sort of political conversation. How do you feel about that? I'm not trying to put words in your mouth. I'm Jen, oh. this is not a rhetorical question. I'm just asking you. I mean, I think the world we are in does require a conversation. And yet, I mean, I have like, you know, you know, when I'm, feeling out a new business opportunity, we're mm. not talking about politics. We're always talking about the corporate need that they're facing, which is usually, I mean, right now the thing is retention. It's slowing, people are quitting less. And I think the talk of recession is going to keep asses in seats as they were. Yes. Um, and you know, it's interesting because I do wonder, so my, my chapter titled Tiny Connections Will Get You Laid, I yeah. thought it was fun and I thought it would encourage someone to realize the energy of the book. Right. The chapter actually doesn't talk about sex at all. It talks mm -hmm. about connection. What is real connection? Sure. 
And, and that's like, how long do you hold a gaze with a stranger? You know, how, how do you gauge reactions with strangers to like, you know, a hand on a wrist? It's a very chaste chapter, really. Yes. But I had a conversation with a financial advisor who's, you know, a very lovely woman. And she was all excited to gift my book until she saw that chapter. Mm. She's like, oh, I absolutely can't. So if, if that chapter which is totally benign, yes. off-putting to the financial community. And obviously, I mean, I also have friends in the Mormon sphere and they were like, oh, absolutely not. And all it is is a chapter heading, right? It's just yeah. the word The word sex is referenced in a slightly, um, I guess, uh, out there kind of way. I think to your point, the society is still rolling around in a dusting of puritanical, you know, righteousism. I don't know how yes. else to say it, you know? Yeah. And, so, and, and, it, and it impacts you even in little unintended ways, like a chapter heading some sudden comes back and bites you in the sense that you didn't see how, you know, it gets taken that way because everything is so um, intense right now. Yeah. And I mean, I thought about republishing it, but I just don't think I care enough because at yeah, the end of no, the day, totally like, like what, what is selling an extra 50 bucks going to do for mm -hmm. me? I mean, please. I had a, a, an interesting thing a couple of weeks ago, a friend of mine who makes films um, and does things, interesting things for a lot of, you know, political heavy hitters and uh, worked on the did things for Hillary Clinton and uh, has done stuff for the ACLU, all sorts of stuff, you know, information pieces on green energy, all kinds of stuff. Did a, a 15 minute piece on abortion about three months ago, just in terms of how this is all moving. This was before the Supreme Court reversed Roe. Um, but because she had a progressive commentator narrating it, um, who started talking about you know, mothers and women and so forth. She was getting corrected from people further to the left than her or on the progressive side in terms of, well, look, you know, we can't use these words now because that doesn't include trans people, et cetera, et cetera. Kind of a shifting target of the way the English language is being used as a political tool on both the left and the right. You know, as a writer, I don't like that any more than I like the idea that everything is cultural appropriation if you write a woman's voice in a novel and you're a male, or if you're a white female and you're writing the woman, a voice of a, of a, of a Latino woman, whatever it may be, you know, at, at a certain point, there's no art, there's no dialogue, there's nothing. I mean, that's why it's called acting. If we get so, um, I don't know how nitpicking about this. So I guess my point to you is it's not only coming from the right. I think these days there's a lot of folks on the progressive side that are just as fundamentalist in their views of how to use language and what's appropriate. And it's a shifting target, almost a kind of virtue signaling that you signal you're kind of in the in-group because you've got your language for that day correct. And it's always changing. I don't know if you, have you run into any of that? Um, I mean, I think corporate America is still trying, like for instance, Juneteenth, one of the largest ad agencies in New York, put out a sign, put out an email, which I was pretty shocked to see, that said, "This is a celebration of everybody's independence." <laughs> I'm like, no, I think according to Wikipedia, this is a celebration of you know African Americans' independence, and it was interesting. So yeah. they're trying to 
backwards, I guess. I don't know if I could call that whitewash, but it's definitely not greenwashing it. So um, sort of reverse engineer it. Yeah, reverse engineer it, which it seems uh, inappropriately timed. Like maybe mm-hmm. in 20 years you can pull that off, off, but it's still too fresh, you know? Yes. Um, I, to some degree, live a little bit in a bubble. So I, and I don't interface a lot with, um, you know, the diversity and inclusion mm-hmm. talks, but that is such a hot thing these days. And on some level, here's what I'm thinking. These, these, I don't know what we call them. These, these people, I guess these people or however that these classes of people, there we go. These classes of people have been marginalized for so long that in order to get their time and be heard, the spotlight needs to be extra bright. So we're going to like, we're going to learn as we grow. And as the lights come up and everything is very bright and all Mm. of a sudden, you know, to your point, there's no room for art. And everything got very nitpicky and all of a sudden our sentences are unreadable because there's just way too many, you know, descriptors. Yes. Um, I think there'll be a pullback. But at the same time, we need to have that expansion to uncomfort in order to perhaps find a happy medium where everyone, Mm -hmm. you know, not just um, happy white people who are heterosexual and have 2.2 children. Right. Never consider having an abortion live. Yeah. You yeah, know? no, I think I think that's a really well-made point, and uh, and you know you you put it very well. I just have been around the block enough to see things come and go, and realize that in every social movement there also is an aspect of kind of groupthink and and a fad. What's left when that passes is the real thing, but in the moment when it's all coming to the fore is never when you can really see clearly what it is. And I, you know, having been through the '60s and the '70s and various permutations of social and political movements and what's cool and what's hip and then what isn't, you know, um, I've seen things come and go before. And I often think that the message of an older person to a younger person in that context is, you know, it's never quite what it seems at the time. And of course, the law of unintended consequences is always 100%. It's never going to turn out as you expected it. And, and good intentions often some lead to things that are not in the end become very awkward and difficult. You know, that's, that's the only point I'm making. But I think your idea about you need an extra bright light on something when people have been marginalized is a very good point. And of course, that uh, is something I agree with. So let's, let's talk a little more about the book in terms of what you do day to day to bring this to people's attention. You're, you, you speak and you talk. Now, is this a book that you're able to use you know, when you give a talk, are some of those talks geared to dealing with some of this material or is the coaching on the corporate side? I asked you before whether they connect, but I'm asking you if you're finding venues in which the the big power of tiny connections, um, how small interactions spark awesome outcomes, are you able to use that practically as part of other things you were doing or is the book kind of in its own zone? The book is mostly in its own zone, but there's nuggets of the book that I guess I consider bricks Mm -hmm. in my wall of what I do. So for instance, with the, I I work with, you know, I would consider them geniuses, very left brain leaders Mm -hmm. who are exceptional at what they do. But the Mm -hmm. problem is, is when you take them out of the office and then you create Sputniks of geniuses all over the country and the world, how do those people 
solidify the team that they're building around them? How do they create a sense of connection? Hmm. So leveraging, you know, the humanity of the book, but then twisting it with group coaching and one-on-one coaching, I support people leaning into their human side, you Hmm. know, and leaning into their vulnerabilities when it comes to how you show up for your one-on-ones and your group roundtables. And I think at the end of the day, it's, it's a challenge because geniuses are always right. And there's very little room for improvement. Yes. But at the same time, when you're struggling to keep employees or, you know, the best people walk away um, or you're not getting the growth and the momentum that you wanted from a team, Mm -hmm. I think it it becomes a little less easy to not wonder, is it part of what I'm I'm doing? And, you know, I I think there's powerful statistics around happiness leading to productivity. And one of my favorite stats, which is not in the book, is 61% of people with five to seven friends at a company don't take a higher paying offer. Hmm. So, like they love their job because they love their team. They love their there, yeah. Yeah. And they're happy. But the thing is, is when it becomes all about money, we lose. So it's, it's interesting to me, the companies that don't like they're saying, Oh, we're going to have cutbacks. They're, you know, they're not spending on the soft stuff. They're not mm. going to do team engagements. They're, they're missing out because yeah. without the, without the expense of the corporate offices, because so many companies have been able to spend less, mm. like, what are you doing with that money? That's really supporting people. And I think it all comes around to, you know, how do we save ourselves as a community? And I love your last chapter where you talked about this utopian vision of what this world is, what America would have. Mm. And I think, I think if more companies really thought about how do I empower and promote every person here as Mm. though they were someone I deeply cared about, they would find not only their corporate mission advancing, but they would find those people thriving and staying. And sticking around. Yeah. You know, which brings us to things like paid parental leave and the fact that here in the US, you know, when you compare us to every other developed country, and this is not news to anybody, but I'm just wondering from your point of view, why is it that corporate America is not demanding as it would uh, if it understood this on the sort of happiness side, if people stick around and do a better job, you know, what, what is this time lag between what corporations do for people and even worse yet, when it comes to everything from the minimum wage to paid parental leave and these other things, you know, what, it, what, how do you read the situation? I mean, you let your, you know, you've got your Canadian connection, so you know, there's alternatives to this because in Canada, they do this better. And in Europe, better still, you know, France full year of paid maternity or paternity yeah. leave. Yeah. I mean, what's wrong with this country that we talk about all this in terms of just weeks and then nobody takes it or it, it doesn't even get made into uh, to law? I mean, what, what is the problem here? What, what is it about the American situation? Because these yeah. other countries are capitalist countries. They're not, you know, these are not communist states. Everybody owns stuff no, and they invest. And- but they are way more socialist. And that's the problem. Americans look at that and they go socialist. Literally, Harvard education people think socialism is equal to communism. Mm. And I'm always like, you do understand they're not really aligned. Socialism is 
putting the good of all men first, not one man first. Capitalism, you know, there's there's some super rich dude way out ahead of the pack, and it is most likely a dude, although congrats to the Kardashians for giving them all a run for their money. Yeah. Um, <laughs> um, you know, and he's way out in the front and, you know, we're, here's the weird thing. This is what I think the distinction is. And this is all just in my little world made up. I think we've bought into the dream somehow that when we watch him and we cheer for him, we too could get lucky and win the lottery. So this weird American dream piece of pie that got sold in, you know, after the depression that we will rise again and that everyone has, everyone has the potential somehow of getting American lucky and Mm -hmm. American lucky as its own sort of star spangled goodness to it. Whereas I think the rest of the world, honestly, like, I think there's a lot to be said for, inherited education my parents went to school you know I go to school and I I know you didn't get a high school degree but you you could have at this point you know like they have inherited wealth a lot more inherited wealth there's a lot less um emphasis placed on consumerism yeah like like they don't go out and buy a new car every couple of years you know Mm. that car gets passed down you know it's it's a different way of living and they Mm. value you know, quality over quantity. I mean, I think also the fact that 72% of Americans don't have passports really supports blinders. Hmm. Like, I think if Americans could go to France and walk through a grocery store, I love grocery stores in foreign countries. They would be a overwhelmed by all the cheese and the whipped cream products and the the mousses. There's like 19 different kinds of chocolate mousse and that's just dark chocolate. But then they would see the prices of meat, like a small piece of meat in Europe is like $10, right? Where it's like 564 here in New York. Mm. And I'm, you know, I'm whatever, but like they would realize, oh, that's interesting. That's expensive. And it would actually potentially start a dialogue. Why is your meat so expensive? And just that kind of dialogue changes how we see ecology of humanity. Yeah, or just ride a train on a transportation system that really works. And it's comfortable and clean. Yes. Yeah. With cushy yeah. seats. Yeah. Hey, I hear go, yeah, go ahead. No, I was going to say, like, do you, do you have a vision for what we could be doing in the next five to 10 years that's going to shift this country into curiosity? Because I think there's just this rhetoric of we've got it right. And we don't have a right. We you know, my, so my sense is, is we're going to have to redefine what we mean by the word success. And as long as we define it by job title and income, you know, it's always going to be this, as you put it so well, this sort of dream of the American dream where maybe we could get lucky and win the lottery rather than let's let's have a world in which people are taken care of and are happy and not so lonely and where there's a, a safety net beyond which you can't sink, you know, whether it's a minimum wage or paid parental leave. So, you know, women aren't going back to three jobs, low paid jobs to make ends meet while her C-section is still healing. And, you know, she's in the back of the the restroom in a McDonald's changing the bandage because, you know, she was given three days at home after a C-section. I mean, we're, we're living, you know, we've created an inhuman culture that is really tough on people and of course on on caregiving and parents um, you know uh, radically tough on on that 
I, I, I think, you know, we're, we have a time of great opportunity for your book, my book, other things to speak to people, because I think there's a great reconsideration going on of just that question. What do we mean by success? And if it really is always just the job description and the money, I think that's really become a dead end for a lot of people. And we're really, a lot of us are looking for ways to, to change that up. And I think your book fits in with that um, because it, it has a vision of life that's not just all about money. Yeah. And I mean, it's, it's interesting. When I, when I was writing the book, I was actually engaged to someone who was very wealthy. And I honestly thought uh, as that relationship um, eroded, I realized I could give a TED talk with such certainty and clarity on how money does not buy you happiness. Mm -hmm. And I was literally like walking on the most beautiful beach in the world, you know, in Turks and Caicos and just marveling at how lonely, like bitterly lonely I was and how all the, all the dollars didn't matter at all. Mm. And at the end of the day, I would rather have connection, community, and strive for something I believed in. I mean, mm. to some degree, it's creative ideals, right? Mm. Yeah. And I know you, I know you mirror that, Mr. I'm out building things with my grandson. That's awesome. Yeah. So let's wrap this up here and then um, make sure everybody knows, once again, hold the book up, how we can get in touch with you. you Take a look at the book, uh, The Big Power of Tiny Connections, How Small Interactions Spark Awesome Outcomes. And Jen, uh, we will put links that you will give Ernie, uh, my producer, so people can reach you or buy the book. We'll put everything up wherever this shows so people, you know, you will be able to get in touch with you easily. Um, in this talk together, was there anything that we didn't cover that you wanted to talk about that you'd like to mention before we wrap this up? No, I think if anybody wants to reach out, you can see my name is Jen Nash and I have a little yes. dot com. So it's very easy to find me. I'm well, Jen we're going to put, we're going to put links yeah. to everything. And all right. So this is, links, so I'm yes, good. in conversation awesome. with Frank Schaefer, we've been talking with Jen Nash and, uh, my new book is Fall in Love, Have Children, Stay Put, Save the Planet, Be Happy. And there's a real overlap with what Jen has been writing about because it's all about connection and the quality of relationships in our lives, defining who we are far ahead of every other aspect of our lives. That's where joy is found. And Jen and I are very much on the same page on that. So Jen, this has been really good. Thank you so much. And I wish you well. Please stay in touch with me um, and let's talk again. Thank you like that. Thank you, Frank. Great questions. Take care. Thanks a lot. In Conversation with Frank Schaefer is a production of the George Bailey Morality and Public Life Fellowship. It is produced by Ernie Gregg and hosted by Frank Schaefer, author of Fall in Love, Have Children, Stay Put, Save the Planet, Be Happy, a post-pandemic blueprint for rebalancing work and family in favor of love and living. To learn more and support the show, please visit lovechildrenplanet.com.